Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Inchain podcast. Today I have Jake with me. Jake is the managing partner at CoinFund and today we are going to talk to him more about his fund and he's investing in NFTs and he's also a digital artist himself. So we are going to talk to him more about that as well. Um yeah, Jake, uh, how how are you doing today? Good. Arnav, thank you for having me. Uh pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, uh can you just uh sort of give a background um how you got into crypto and uh, some background on coinfund as well you are one of the i think old, uh, oldest uh, crypto vcs um yeah um sure i'd be happy to um well i'm a you know i'm a technologist i'm the son of two uh, engineers both my mom and my dad have worked in uh you know uh technology for for many many years uh including including financial technology on wall street Um I'm sort of a professional early adopter of tech. I uh learned coding. I had a computer very very early in our house in like the 90s, learned coding when I was about 14. Mm-hmm. Um you know, grew up uh studied math and computer science and uh you know, in in terms of industry I worked in the in the hedge fund world and and kind of pure tech. I was a technical product manager, uh, an engineer at Amazon, uh and then a CTO of a fintech startup. Um and along the way, you know, I got introduced to Bitcoin pretty early on. One of my friends here in New York um you know, showed me Bitcoin in 2011. Uh I like to say when about probably 100 people in New York knew what Bitcoin was. Um and I just, you know, fell down the rabbit hole. I I especially fell down the rabbit hole after reading Vitalik's white paper for Ethereum and and uh that's really what got me into the space full time is this idea of uh digital assets as a new asset class. um and uh yeah founded coinfund in uh 2015 that summer uh been investing in the space uh uh and full time in the space for for about 5 years interesting so um you you i think you i heard your podcast on bankless about nfts and stuff so um how how was your journey into nfts um and then i guess we can get deeper into um you know how you see normal say art auction houses and stuff uh getting uh into yeah, yeah using nfts probably um but yeah how yeah. how did you fell down in the uh, nft rabbit hole yeah ju- i was watched nfts develop almost probably pretty much from inception right i remember kind of the first uh, hints of nfts were rare pepe memes uh that were posted on counterparty network Uh, I think that was back in 2015 so I yeah I remember seeing it back then um personally I'm you know I'm a tech guy I also have done a bunch of creative stuff all my life I've done art and photography and played musical instruments things like that um so I've always like taken an interest in art uh but in terms of the in terms of NFTs it's just watching this sort of process kind of organically be created this idea of scarcity on the blockchain for um for art and collectibles very natural you know synergy and over time that space is like growing and growing and developing and i think the most important you know sort of development there has been like how do we think about this like what's happening here um and very recently this you know a few months ago we published our thesis about our investment in rarible.com which is a big nft uh, marketplace um and we uh kind of put forward a thesis around nfts and what are nfts I think to start with, you know, we can think of them as liquid intellectual property, not just for art, not just for in-game assets, not just for collectibles, 
but really for digital content uh, more broadly. And so I think you know today um, we're seeing a bunch of traction in kind of the early use cases of NFTs as digital art, um, you know, as collectibles a, a little bit. Um, we're starting to see MP3s being tokenized, but this is part of a larger, I think, tokenization process that is opening up new markets. And that's what really gets me excited as an investor uh, uh, in the NFT space. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, the, we started off, I, I think the mainstream adoption came with CryptoKitties, but now in, during the DeFi boom, again, we had like meme and, and uh, that sort of was more DeFi as in like they just used DeFi to print some rare uh, digital art. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, even if you look at the numbers of sales, uh, it has grown, it is growing exponentially uh, this year uh, for NFTs. So in terms of uh, the the things that you're looking at nfts they are mostly you know uh, collectibles and uh, art digital art uh, are i think the two main areas right that people are uh, buying right now um is is are, are are those things that are these two the mainly things that you're looking uh, uh you know that this might grow or there are some potential use cases that might emerge apart from these as well yeah, good question. So I think I think art and collectibles is where most uh, sort of sales volume and arguably the most product market fit has been uh, for for the NFT kind of standards that exist. Um, we look a bit more broadly than that, right? If you look at the NFT space, what kind of products and companies are there? Um, well, one company that we're invested in is called Dapper Labs. They're originally the creators of CryptoKitties. Um, but really, like our main interest there is the fact that they're building a dedicated blockchain that will uh, not only serve the scale that's needed for sort of like mainstream adoption of these kinds of assets, uh, but also does has interesting features like, you know, scalable off-chain computation, um, you know, sort of uh, usability. It has its own programming language, many other features. I would say like broadly in NFT world today, you have just a few kinds of companies, right? You have issuers these are people who uh or or, or companies that create uh actual digital assets so crypto kitties would be an issuer you have issuance platforms so this is something like async.art where i'm an angel investor this is a great place to go and mint programmable art right this is where you go to create the nfts um you have nft marketplaces like OpenSea, rarible uh who's uh pre-seed around uh, we led this year um you know, but just as well, we have super rare and makerspace is kind of more more niche, dedicated kind of art marketplaces. Um, and finally, you have this fourth category, which is which I think in my mind is more of a catch-all right now. But it's really the kind of the, the the financial services that you need if you consider NFTs a new financial asset class. Then just like fungibles, um, you need financial services for non-fungibles. And so these are things like being able to deposit your NFT and get a loan uh, against the value of that of that uh, of that asset, or it might be indices of digital art kind of tokenized as NFTs. So those are the four you know kind of areas that that we we've looked at, um, and you know I would say the most growth has been there's a very promising growth in in sort of collectibles around what uh, Dapper Labs is doing with NBA Top Shot. Um, but there's also some very interesting growth in just kind of open public 
um, you know, open standard, you know, digital art uh, creation, sales, curation, and uh, and collection. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I guess uh, you also invested uh, recently. Um, coming to the fourth point of financial services in NFTs, right? They are uh, fractionalizing um, NFTs. Um, so yeah, for in terms of NFT liquidity, uh, because they are by design uh, illiquid. Um, how how do you see? Uh, so there's uh, you know there's uh, NFT fi- NFT fi I guess where you can loan out uh, NFTs. I recently saw someone loaned out the CryptoPunk and got a ten thousand dollar die uh, loan. Um, so so in terms of the financial services uh, space, where like if yeah, what sort of things do you think uh, are artists struggling with, or what as an entrepreneur, what can you know uh, what are the main pain points that that one can solve uh, in in that area or or in general for artists and even collectibles and and all that things as well yeah well you mentioned liquidity right and and i think that's a that's the right observation when you go from um well if you if you look at token markets historically token markets have been pretty illiquid as well like it's pretty hard to get a token onto you know a centralized exchange Back in 2017, people paying were paying, um, you know, maybe even a million dollars at times to get listed on a major uh, kind of token exchange. Um, and and really, like two years ago, the time to liquidity for a token was probably measured in years. Um, I would say now that has changed dramatically as we've gotten a lot more infrastructural technology. This summer, we've saw the uh, the volume on decentralized exchanges you know, go from, you know, essentially single digit millions like last year um, to as much as $1.5 billion a day. And that's not even sort of scratching the surface of kind of general um, exchange volumes in blockchain. It's something like 1% of the volume. But even then, just given that kind of technological development, you know, we have managed to make the path to liquidity for tokens go from, you know, something measured in years to something that really could develop essentially overnight. Um, and in the same way, when we look at the NFT markets, now we're dealing with non-fungible assets. Um, you know, th- historically, these kinds of assets have been, you know, even more difficult to get liquidity for uh, because, you know, every single one has a, has a different price, has a different process for price discovery. Um, and um, I, I think it still remains to have a bunch of d- technology that will help us to create liquidity in NFTs. But the good news is that that technology is being developed. I mean, the basic technology for liquidity in NFTs is the marketplace, right? You know, you're either going to sell an NFT or you're going to auction an NFT, and then you will uh, you you will essentially discover the price. What Niftex is doing is it's saying we have another way of creating liquidity for NFTs because we already have all of this liquidity essentially infrastructure and fungibles why don't we fractionalize um you know the ownership in this nft asset as a fungible token and then we can use that infrastructure and so what happens is you take some you know very expensive non-fungible let's say it's like crypto kitty number one or something uh it's gone for fifty thousand dollars in the past right and then you uh you fractionalize it you put those uh erc20 fractions onto a decentralized exchange or maybe it gets listed on a centralized exchange and then you have price discovery that way you know for the asset 
So, you know, to answer your question, I think liquidity is a, is a major challenge, but like, like everything else, it's, a, it's very much a, a, a technical challenge and it's just very much a, do we have enough people in this, you know, in this space that, that will um, enable higher levels of, of activity? Yeah, I guess um, there, there's fractionization also. I've seen people like working on, you know, creating these baskets like wrapped crypto kitties and crypto punks as well, like where, um, and essentially what, what that can allow is like, say if we have an artist and they have like a, uh, like they, they have a wrapped NFT in which one can deposit an NFT in a contract and they can get one ERC-20, then that creates liquid market for artists where, um where each of like they can get they can sell their art instantly in say if they have say 100 pieces uh in a in a sort of in a, in a say a bonding curve or some uh some sort of pool they can directly sell that piece uh there uh, where where each piece would be of same value though like that's that's how that would work um i think that's also an interesting idea and for fractionization as well i guess yeah that's that's also um yeah, I've, I, I think there there are some issues with collectibles, fractionalizing collectibles. Like if you are fractionalizing a gaming collectible, then it sort of becomes useless to use it in that game, I guess. Uh, but but uh, if you're fractionalizing an art, then I think that makes sense. Um, yeah. Do, do, what do you think about this? Um, well, to be honest, it's hard to say, right? Like, I don't think we've seen a lot of examples of in-game uh, assets being fractionalized. I don't even think we've seen a lot of kind of art pieces being fractionalized yet. Um, you know, my concern when you go from NFTs to fractionalized NFTs is is that, um, you know, wh- how does this work? Is this a one-way process? Can you ever kind of return, like, is it a one-way process that goes into essentially like public ownership, you know, of this asset and you can never really go back or can you convert, you know, these sort of shards of ownership back into the original NFT at some point? I mean, it seems to be like that once you fractionalize, you essentially create kind of a DAO. I mean, the token holders are like a de facto organization that, you know, collectively controls uh, the ownership of this asset, the sale of this asset, the transfer of this asset, the lending of the asset, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's um, that's you know being in a in a governance process is a high friction thing. It's a it slows you down. It you know it potentially impacts um, excuse me the value uh, the value of the asset that uh, underneath. So I I think there's a lot of experiments that we still need to do around how do we do this. How do we get the right liquidity? What is the right governance process? Can that governance process be attacked? What are the attack vectors? How do we protect from that? You know, is this a one-way process? Can we go back? Is there dispute resolution? Like all of the issues of, you know, community ownership and DAOs, I think come into play once you start having fractionalized assets at scale. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think... uh... Yeah, I think I saw like Flamingo DAO, they were, uh, they also have proposed like on the website at least, and I had a chat with one of their DAO members is uh, they they do have fractionization and they would probably, you know, because they have a DAO inbuilt, like they can use that to uh, vote on things, maybe how to use the NFT and and stuff. But yeah, I guess for say, it, it would only make sense for a very high value NFT that people would spend even time to, you know, vote on things. If it's like a thousand dollar NFT, then you know, it just isn't worth it to for people, uh, I guess, to vote on things. Um, 
So coming, I don't know if you saw about this, um, like poly market, uh, like prediction market thing that happened. Um, I was, I, I think it, we really saw a good adoption, uh, in terms of volumes and how they had built their platform on layer two, uh, solutions. So, uh, for NFTs, uh, right now, if, if say someone wants to, um, you know, buy and sell on on Ethereum. It only makes sense to trade on uh, NFTs, which which have certain amount of value because you are paying for the gas fees. So, in terms of uh, bringing usability to NFTs, uh, what, like what sort of innovations are you seeing, and are you are, are you seeing a trend where uh where where we are headed uh in in terms of yeah that on on how how NFTs would become more usable. Um, and even normal people can, you know, get involved. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, I think as a blockchain technology, like all of the innovations that, um, you know, that are impacting the user experience of, of blockchain tech as a whole apply to NFT. So, for example, you know, you now have wallets where just like tokens, you can hold NFTs. Um, you could do kind of recovery of the keys. Um, you know, in terms of interacting with NFT smart contracts, like there is now much better onboarding. Like if you're using magic, you could log into a lot of these sites with your phone. Um, you can also probably use meta transactions to sort of ease the pain and the barrier to entry of having ether. So all that standard stuff is there. Um, what specifically about NFTs um, should be like uh, in the process of innovation going forward. Well, I think again, if if we take the view that like what is an NFT? NFT is liquid intellectual property rights. Um, then you know what you need to establish is like what is the legal licensing that a creator confers upon a purchaser of their work in this form? And to be clear, like you know when when people do this today they're already subject to the property rights of whatever jurisdiction that they're in uh when when they create the work and when they transact um now what i what i think is going to happen is i think people will uh will make those rights a lot more explicit like for example there would be like a t a terms of service just like an open source where you select the license of the code that you're uh, you know, you're launching the creators of NFTs will be able to select, um, you know, the the property rights that they're conferring. I think that's going to be huge because what that does is it is it affords a lot of protections to um, real professional creators for whom this is a huge issue. This is their livelihood, right? So they need to be able to protect their, um, you know, their interest in this way on the blockchain. And I think it's totally possible and I think it's happening. What's super interesting is that over time, that process of um, kind of rights management, I think might also have a shot at being decentralized. And you have projects like Aragon, you know, Claros and others doing these like on-chain dispute resolution or subjective oracle systems or, or so-called courts, right? That might provide those kinds of protections. Like for example, if someone tries to go and upload um, you know, your work as an NFT and then tries to sell it as if they're you, you might actually have, you know, digitally native, crypto native recourse on chain to stop that kind of activity. In other words, moderation, you know, curation, rights management. Um, so, so I think that that's a really exciting, you know, kind of, kind of path and uh, development uh, in the NFT space. I think, um, you know, in terms of innovations, the other 
kind of major area, right, is that this turns, uh, you know, because NFTs are on the blockchain, because they're, uh, they have the ability to have these like fi financial, uh, this financial infrastructure around them, this makes NFTs a financial asset class. So art really has never been a financial asset class for most people. It's usually, you know, for rich people doing tax schemes. But what has ha what is happening with NFTs is that the price point of art is coming down. It's meeting this middle market of creators that didn't even dream about monetizing their art, uh, you know, kind of on global markets before, but now they can. So the artists are making money. The purchasers are able to actually buy the art because the price point is lower. And as owners of the art, they now have access to a suite of financial tools um, that allow them to use this, uh, these, these assets in a financial way. So for example, you can invest in artists by buying early, you know, waiting for those artists to get big and then reselling. That's the, that's the basic way. But then again, as we mentioned in the future, you might be able to use your art as collateral. You might be able to use it as a store of value. Um, you might be able to use it, uh, variously, right. As a, also as a marketing mechanism and, and so on and so forth. Interesting. So I think like for, uh, like if you look at people who actually invest are, you know, in look at investing in stuff and compare it to, you know, everyone that is on the internet, that percentage is, I think still very less, right? Like people, uh, who are investing in stocks and, and at least I think it might be higher in say the U S but I'm say based in India here, people, there's, uh, people who are investing. It's, it's, it's very less compared to everyone who's using the internet. So when you say, uh, say that a person, uh, like, like if, if, if people talk about uh, NFTs going into web 2.0 communities, like, you know, Instagram and, and, and becoming popular there, um, do, what sort of people do you think would actually uh, buy these, uh, say, if you look at NFT art, art pieces, do you think that even normal people say, I want to say, uh, support one of my friend who is just getting started with uh, being an artist? Um, do, do you see that can also happen that say I can buy, say, a painting or, or, or NFT for $1, maybe it's running on a very highly scalable blockchain or a layer two um, system? Absolutely. I mean, again, I, I think this is a highly democratizing technology. If you look at um, the way that the art market kind of works today, there's a large number of people who, oh, relatively large number of people who are interested in art, right? But only about 1% of them can actually monetize their interest as a creator into a you know, vocation that is sustainable and that they could do full time and, and, and live off of. And one of the reasons why that happens is because um, there's a very small number of entities that control the vast majority of the money that is the demand side of art, right? And I think what blockchain does, it goes into this market and it says, wait a minute, we're going to like lower the barrier to entry, not only for people to create, right? Like if you think a hundred years ago, you know, if you wanted to be a photographer, it was a whole ordeal. You had to go buy a camera, you know, and then chemicals and a dark room and set it up. And, uh, you know, Ansel Adams would spend hours like, you know, doing photography. These days, anyone with a phone can, can take out their phone and snap a picture in a second. And now they're a photographer, right? So that the cost of 
of, of entry into photography has gone down. In the same way, what NFTs do is that they lower the cost of entry into digital art. You can create a piece of digital work. It could be a still image. It could be a photograph. It could be uh, you know, an animated work or a video. You go, you mint that as a scarce, non-fungible asset on the blockchain, and suddenly you have an, a global open market where you can attempt to find buyers for this work. And so in the same way that we're democratizing the barrier to entry into creating art, we're also democratizing the barrier to entry to collecting art. Now anyone with a phone can go on rarible.com, start curating uh, you know, their own portfolio, uh, start supporting the artists that they, that they, uh, that they appreciate. Um, and so they're, they're taking that small number of entities that originally in the art world were controlling the demand side of art, and they're really expanding that as well. And so what happens is, you know, the price points of these things, like they go down, but the opportunity set also widens to a much, you know, larger uh, number of people. And so th that's generally like how I look at it. I think we're about to open up a huge middle market of new digital creators that just weren't monetizing their interest in their work this way before. And we're going to open up a middle market of curators, collectors, and galleries, and even just individuals who can now own this art because of the lower price point and because of the accessibility and the low cost of this uh, technology. And I think that's very exciting. Uh, you know, it, it opens up growth that just wasn't possible before. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I think uh, even like secondary uh, markets, like where you uh, allow an artist to earn for a sale, that that's also quite interesting. Uh, that has been you know enabled with blockchains. Um, in terms of say, uh, th there are some interesting use cases that people are sort of talking about as well in the NFT spaces. That like you allow say people if 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 you say are an artist, a music, um, if you're a musician you say create a mint an nft related to your music piece and somehow the revenue or is, is tied to uh tied to that nft or or even for um yeah like for uh, like for art it's easy i think to do secondary uh sale uh uh like yeah give money to the artist but do you think that uh these things qualify securities like when you look at say um allowing people to do revenue sharing uh with nfts and stuff i mean i'm not a lawyer i think you'd need to first of all pick a jurisdiction and then go through a securities analysis in that jurisdiction my my gut though says you know as far as the u.s is concerned i mean we have laws in the u.s that are trying to do things like, for example, enforce secondary sale royalties for artists. I believe, I might be mistaken, I believe there's a law to that effect in California. Um, and I believe also that most people say, like, nobody ever follows this law, right? Um, so one of the really exciting developments in the digital art space, like within blockchain, has been the fact that you can, um, you know, not, not totally, but you, 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 can, you can use the technology to help enforce things like secondary royalties. And today, like what happens if you are the creator of, a, uh, you know, an, of an NFT artwork on Rarible, you can actually choose you know, if this thing gets resold later on secondary markets by third parties, 
you know, what is the royalty that goes to the creator? And as someone who's sold works uh, personally, I'll tell you, it's the most exciting feeling like when someone somewhere in the world sells your work and you get, a, you know, you get a little bit of a royalty for that. It just makes you feel appreciated. It makes you feel like people are interested in, in your work, interested in trading it. Um, and for people who are doing this professionally or full time, you know, this creates a revenue stream that is able to support them uh, as an artist and, and let, lets them do this kind of as, a, as their core focus. And I think that's, that's very exciting. Um, are there laws and protections for consumers? Absolutely. I think you have to, you know, look at that on a, on a jurisdictional level. I don't think that um, there's a, there's a ton of security issues there, but, but, but maybe I'm wrong and, and anyone who's dabbling there should absolutely consult a lawyer to, to that effect. Um, but, but I, I just think it's conceptually, it's a very exciting democratizing technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, for uh, like if, if we look at say the art auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's they do like seven eight billion dollar sale uh, per year I think that's the number I saw um, might be yeah it's around that figure um, seven billion each and I think the global art market is around 80 billion or something around that number um, so and most of it is uh, people just buy it and you know park it in a freeport in Geneva or something uh, so do you think like have you seen interest from these people and do, do you think that they will ever get involved with digital art because most of these people are just buying it just for you know uh as you mentioned as a tax scheme like is it is it that they will always prefer to go through that route which is linked with say the normal financial sector where you can um uh and there are laws around it i guess that allow you to do it but uh so, so right now, uh, like, so do you think that this, this would take some transition time that uh, we have more laws and we allow these people to come in or they'll just, you know, uh, have you seen no interest from them so far? I think there, it, you know, we're early days. I think recently um, Robert Ellis's work sold at Christie's and it actually had uh, a blockchain NFT component, which was tokenized on async.art. That piece sold for about a hundred and I think it was $135,000. And so you definitely um, you definitely see kind of early experiments with these traditional players. Um, you know, someone told me on a phone call the other day, they're like, you know, you don't really have to explain NFTs as much anymore. Like a lot of people in the art world have heard this as a buzzword and they're kind of uh, starting to wrap their minds around it a little bit more. But But generally speaking, it's important to understand that I think, you know, within the art world, like most of that art is actually quite... Uh, you know, quite physical, and a subset of it is digital art. Um, I think the digital art subset is kind of growing within art, and I also think that digital art is sort of the best, um, you know, the, the best match for NFT and blockchain technology currently. I think blockchain technology works very well with virtual assets right now, with the metaverse, and I think over time, you know, probably a little bit later in the timeline, we're going to get into, you know, licensing and tokenization of physical art. But, but I think like the best fit is in digital art right now. And so I would say right now, you know, probably most collectors in the digital art NFT space are not traditional collectors. They're sort of enthusiasts, um, people from the crypto space, um, artists supporting each other, um, or new, new age uh, sort of art galleries. I actually have an art gallery called First Edition, 
the website is firstedition.xyz. Um, and this was my kind of attempt to support, you know, NFT artists, but I'm not a professional gallery. I'm not a professional collector, right? This is a, this is sort of an enthusiast and passion project for me. Um, so, so I would say it's early, but we're definitely going to get there. And uh, the most important thing is, are we growing? And the answer is we're growing dramatically. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, what really excited me was actually seeing adoption of NBA Top Shot and uh, normal, like, I, I don't think it's uh, even crypto people are using it. It's mostly just uh, normal uh, NBA collectors and stuff. At least what I heard and saw on social media. Um, and I guess that that also, if, if someone can go, that sort of proves that if someone can build a good user experience and has a compelling use cases for even normal, say, art collectors or collectors um, that we, we can get adoption from those as well. Um, coming to uh, like uh, investing in NFTs yourself uh, and, and as a retail investor, like like say if you if you want, if you are, say, a crypto investor and you want to, you know, just try to try to uh, buy some art maybe to support the artist or even try to get in early in in good uh, projects um how do you recommend to uh someone to you know proceed with investing in nfts right now yeah well i don't i don't know if i do recommend uh, investing in nfts but if someone is interested in, in investing in, in nfts uh, they probably have a few a few options i mean the um the basic like first principles way of investing is that you um you sit down you figure out who are the creators what they're doing um are they long-term players in this space are they creating work that is good that's likely to be um you know that's likely to be highly sought and resold right and you kind of buy the assets themselves and uh, you know, and, and hope for their appreciation. That applies to art. That might also apply to virtual land inside of virtual worlds like the central land or crypto voxels. It might apply to collectible items like crypto kitties or block cities or, or some other, you know, some other um, uh, set of issuers, right? Um, and, and that's really the hardest way. Like that's the way that, that takes the most work what I'm really excited about, and again, this goes back to Niftex, is the reason that, you know, the, the, the implications of fractionalized ownership of these assets also means that we can start to build indices, right? We can have indices of what are the best music MP3s, uh, what are the best uh, kind of crypto art, art pieces, um, and then we can just have a token that denotes ownership in that index. And when you, when you get there, you know, kind of the curation, the research, the selection piece has somehow been figured out for the investor. And then the investor has a diversified investment, you know, into a set of, uh, of works. And I'm sure that um, while there's not a ton of this today, um, Niftex would be an example, uh, arc.gallery, which is, you know, you were talking about Raft Crypto Punks, which is the folks behind uh, arc.gallery. Uh, you know they're doing kind of on a similar path um you know and and i and over time i, I do think there's going to be like tons of digital art and, and various kinds of nft indices that investors could uh, invest into and then the final way you've already mentioned flamingo dow um i'm a member of flamingo dow through through first edition um i'm actually super excited about this idea of um decentralized autonomous organizations DAOs being able to curate collections of art 
and to create sort of investment vehicles. In other words, funds, you know, for, for art investment. I think Flamingo DAO is, you know, one of the most advanced pieces of technology uh, that's out there today. Um, it has some proven DAO technology. It has a legal technology, uh, which is which is fully regulatorily compliant. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's very early in that space, but I do think that over time, there will be many opportunities where people interested in this in the space from an investment perspective can join an organization like that um, and and uh, you know and also get diversified exposure to NFTs through the curation process that these DAOs uh, go through. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I agree. I think. Um, yeah. I'm also uh, excited about Flamingo, Flamingo and and. Uh, yeah, possibility of having indexes as we grow uh, with with the NFT market. Um, coming to your other portfolio, uh, what what other things are you looking at right now in CoinFund apart from uh, you know NFTs um, and then exciting things that you are you have seen in in this DeFi summer uh, time and 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 some uh, potential things that that are coming up uh, that that sort of you know are are interesting to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many um, there's so many areas, but I'll tell you I'll tell you kind of high level where I've spent most of my time uh, this year, and then I'll tell you about a, a project that we recently invested in. So the areas that I probably spent the most uh, time researching this year have been NFTs, of course. I've been working with Rarible and accelerating them just about all year. These guys have done a great job. They went to they went from like fifth to market. NFT marketplace, the number one by on-chain volume. So that's been great. Another, of course, another huge area is DeFi, where we positioned fairly early. Back in the end of 2019, we made investments in uh, in Balancer and Open uh, and Union Credit, which is an under-collateralized lending platform I'm super excited about. Balancer has seen huge growth in the AMM space. Um, derivative space has blown up. There's a ton of people uh, you know, interested in, in, in sort of like online uh, derivative products and, and, uh, and, and decentralized derivative products. The other area has been DAOs. If you've been following what Aragon has been doing with Aragon Court, which is now converting to Aragon Protocol, with Govern, with um, Snapshot, Optimistic Voting. Now we could get into some of that stuff, but it's just like very exciting efficiency technology for, again, on-chain coordination of, of, uh, of different organizations. And finally, oracles. And this is where I'm getting to. Um, yes, just yesterday, uh, we announced that, uh, or I should say API3 announced the funding round uh, led by Placeholder uh, together with CoinFund. And uh, there's a bunch of other great investors in the round, uh, including Pantera and DCG and so on and so forth. But this is an area that I think has been uh, generally like underserved by different projects. I think Chainlink has been uh, kind of the main uh, and most visible player in that space. But API3 brings a really interesting approach uh, to on-chain data. And what it's basically saying is, you know, every, um, every Oracle network and Oracle system that has come before essentially has the same architecture. And that architecture is there's a, there's a bunch of um, sort of first uh, party providers of data. Think Google, right? Google is providing APIs on weather and traffic and maps and, and all of this stuff. And 
you know, historically what we've done is we've created decentralized networks where there's a bunch of like intermediaries that go and take that Google data and put it on chain. And those, those intermediaries, they themselves act in this like decentralized manner. They have a consensus protocol. They have to agree on what API data is correct. And it's generally been pretty costly to do that. It creates attack vectors where, you know, some of the nodes in that network can go ahead and start being malicious and try to attack the network. You know, in practice, there has been a bunch of issues with centralization, with terms of services for the APIs that are going on chain. You know, are we are we complying with terms of services? And so what API 3 is doing is saying, hey, wait a minute, can we do a slightly different architecture where we kind of like, you know, get rid of these intermediaries and just go to the first party provider directly and say, you know what, here's a little piece of software. If you can integrate this software into your API, you don't have to get ether, you don't have to get connected to any network, you just have to integrate this little piece of software. But once you do, anyone on Ethereum can pay the gas and query your API, and that API goes directly on the blockchain. So it's sort of cutting out this kind of inefficient, like intermediary set of, of players and, and saying, can the person who's creating the data, can the first party just put the data basically directly on the blockchain? And so that's super exciting. If we can get some traction around that, I think it will go very far in terms of getting a lot of new data into smart contracts. Yeah, so that means like many new assets that can sort of potentially use DeFi, right? Like instead of just crypto assets well i would say um i would say it would it would mean that like even defi could access you know many new kinds of information for example mm -hmm. um you know i worked on a project in in blockchain uh which was called etherisk and one of their first products which i worked on was called flight delay insurance and this was real literally like this was out in 2016 it was already possible on ethereum but what, what you do is if you are taking a plane, you could go ahead and buy some insurance. And if your plane was late, then the smart contract would automatically pay you out, you know, basically a reward, an insurance payout, insurance premium. Um, and so uh, the way that that worked was on a, at that time, it was a centralized Oracle that went to, you know, some third party API that gave you, you know, flight delay information. And, um, you could see this applied to weather, right? If you can get weather onto the blockchain, you could start writing weather insurance. Um, if you can, um, you know, if you can start getting, I don't know, TV ratings or election results. I mean, there's a world of data that you can now start integrating into like on-chain smart contract processes that make the smart contracts a lot smarter, a lot more interesting. Um, yeah, so th that would be an exciting world. Yeah, yeah, that sounds exciting. I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll be looking forward to seeing, uh, yeah, their, their development as well. Um, in terms of, uh, like, yeah, you you mentioned your uh, sort of your overview. Uh, like, what sort of learnings do you think we have gotten from uh, this DeFi summer, like specifically? Um, I think what what I found that it was mostly with with uh, sushi and all these things. People. Uh, the first time they saw thousand percent APY, they were like, "Okay, this is this is pretty cool. Let's put in money." But then they realized, "Okay, this this you need to do it very 
you know, intelligently to to make money and actually um your your someone is going to lose money i guess like uh with with these projects but uh yeah what what sort of interesting things that you have you think that we have learned as a crypto industry and uh yeah for for the for the future yeah that's a great question probably a bunch of things um if you're reading between the headlines what you're starting to realize is that the predominant token model this summer right was the governance token so you know we we hit a cadence where you know at least a couple of projects were coming out every week this summer in defi and every single one of those projects was backed by a token so this idea oh and that token was was uh, was the governance token right and so this idea that um you know that protocols should have native assets and that the best sort of model for native assets is a governance token was really you know put forward in a in a huge way and together with the success of AMMs this summer we saw that the feasibility of doing that also became you know quite feasible right because you could launch a token and and using a liquidity mining program you could have a lot of liquidity the next day so that's kind of exciting um the other thing we saw this summer was um some of the major protocols like compound and balancer and uniswap you know these are now protocols that are generating true uh fundamental value right they're there a lot of people are using them for their purpose of you know whatever it is exchange lending um and they're paying real money to for that service and so these protocols are now having cash flows and those cash flows are uh you know whether explicitly in some protocols or potentially implicitly in other protocols through a governance process are now flowing to token holders and what this does is it creates um valuation frameworks for tokens that didn't exist before in 2017 right most tokens were utility tokens like we had no idea how to calculate the value of them essentially other than through the equation of exchange but but unfortunately the equation of exchange never really you know was never really that practical what we have now is future cash flows and protocols or or existing cash flows which we can use um and we can apply pretty traditional uh you know valuation models and and sort of get to reasonable uh valuations for these tokens the the third thing that was a learning i think is also this idea of protocol uh, vampire attacks right which is essentially using tokens and liquidity mining programs as a competitive mechanism as a competitive vector and so we saw things like sushi swap come in kind of offer you know an alternative to uh the compound smart contracts you know like a lot of a lot of these protocols put forward the idea that you know decentralized open protocols should be fully community owned and community mined and they shouldn't be uh supported in the early days by uh venture capitalists on the cap table and so what we saw is a lot of protocols forking out you know quote unquote the vcs um and then using tokens as the coordination mechanism to actually make that happen now a lot of those you know a lot of those uh attacks didn't really pan out um also uniswap showed that uh, it was actually quite resilient to that sort of attack they've been around for a long time they built up a great brand and this idea of customer brand affinity as stickiness for a protocol you know was actually probably quite a bit underappreciated by investors in the market um but it it really creates an interesting dynamic what it shows you is that in protocol competition 
it's actually fairly low cost to fork something. And so, you know, when you're going out with a protocol, you know, you should take some steps to think about how to protect yourself from that competition or what kind of competition uh, might arise on what, on what factors. Um, and so, like, the other implication of that was that we now have way more AMMs and decentralized exchanges than we had before. I think if you look at um, Sushi, the asset right now, um, you know, it had a it had a bit of like some bad PR. I think I think it's traded down if you look at the price chart. But fundamentally speaking, there's a surprising number of trades being routed to to Sushi Swap right now. So despite the problems, it actually was able to establish itself, you know, as a fairly a substantial player in the AMM space. Uh, and I think that's a huge win for, you know, kind of the decentralization maximalist view of protocols. Yeah, I guess also uh, with the recent uh, reward changes uh, coming, I, I think a lot of people are predicting that uh, since I think Uni, have, Uni doesn't, haven't announced uh, if, if uh, rewards would be given to Uni holders. Uh, and, and there's a lot of, uh, and, and Sushi Swap now has very good like tokenomics like compared to what when they had when it launched in terms of their inflation and stuff i i think there's a lot of people predicting that you know that some volume might actually move to uh sushi swap uh i i actually i was seeing that also um being discussed in some yield aggregator communities that they would switch from uniswap to sushi swap um as well yeah okay uh, that that's interesting uh, I guess I guess that covers our uh, our interview really well. Uh, I appreciate uh, Jake you taking the time out today. And uh, yeah, th- uh, where where can people find out more about your art and how can they reach out to you? Absolutely. Um, well, if you're interested in my work personally, check out Brookman.com, B-R-U-K-H-M-A-N.com, and I have uh, some links to uh, some of the projects that I've worked on. My digital art gallery is FirstEdition.xyz. Check out some of the artists that we've curated there, um, and of course, my main job is, uh, you know, running Coin Fund, uh, crypto fund in the in the blockchain space. So check out um, our blog at blog.coinfund.io or or check out our website. Um, and we're super excited for 2021. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, exciting developments in blockchain, and we can't wait to to cover them. <laughs>